All right, well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, I want to encourage you, if you brought a Bible, to turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. And um, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue Bible on the ground uh, near you. You could follow along with me there in a moment. As I, as I read, we are um, uh, this morning kind of wrapping up this short, really three-week uh, series where we've been looking at this uh, section of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, where we get a, a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. And the Apostle John, who, who experienced this vision of, uh, of the throne room of God, records for us uh, what he saw uh, when, he was, when he was ushered into the throne room of heaven. And there are uh, really, in, in Revelation 4 and 5, kind of three places where he, he tells us what he saw. And so I know we, uh, if you were here last week, uh, we looked at Revelation uh, 5 last week. I want to take another look, uh, particularly at the end of that passage, to see what John saw. Because in Revelation 4 and 5, what's pictured for us there is, is the majesty and beauty of God as he sits on his throne in chapter 4. And then the next thing that John saw is uh, the lion who roars with power, who is also the lamb who is slain, who opens a scroll and unfolds the meaning of history uh, for the human race. And then the third thing that John saw is the response of heaven. When Jesus is recognized as the one who is worthy, he sees that all heaven explodes with worship. So if you would stand with me, um, if you're willing and able, and I'm going to read all of Revelation 5. As we give our attention to God's word together. The Apostle John wrote these words. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down, and they worshipped. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh God, what a, what a glorious glimpse of, uh, of where you sit now, enthroned. God, you are worthy of glory and praise. I pray that our hearts would be warmed this morning as we consider these uh, powerful and breathtaking words. Would you stir us to worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. So what did John see when the Lamb took the scroll 
from the hand of the one seated on the throne. Well, you know, the first thing uh, that we see when you go, uh, when you go to the movies, the first thing you see is a series of trailers, right? Um, I remember as a kid, I don't know if, if this is really the way movies work anymore, but it seemed like there was, there was the commercials and then there would be the screen that said, uh, a preview of coming attractions. And then you would see these trailers, these previews, uh, for a few movies before the main feature would begin. And that, uh, that statement, a preview of coming attractions, these trailers, they're obviously not meant to be the full thing. They're not meant to be the story itself. They're meant simply to whet your appetite uh, for the real thing that will one day uh, come, that you can one day experience. In the same way, what we see, what John saw, and what he communicates to us in Revelation 5 is, in a way, a preview of coming attractions. It's not a preview uh, simply of something that will happen in the future, although there's certainly a future uh, element to this vision for those of us that are are, uh, here in the flesh on earth. Um, But more than that, it, it is a trailer that is meant to whet our appetites as it shows us what's really going on, what's really happening, what, it, what ultimate reality ultimately boils down to. That in the heart of the universe, in the center of the universe, there's a room where God is on his throne. And he is beautiful and he is glorious and he is majestic. And we saw last week the, the, the kind of this drama of... Uh, of who is worthy to open this scroll, who is worthy to make sense of history and to right all the wrongs um, that have been done, and, uh, and who, is, who is worthy to open in the seals that bind that scroll perfectly. And it says in verse 14 that when the lamb, when the lion who roars with power is seen to be the lamb who is slain, that when he takes the scroll... And he is seen to be worthy. Verse 14 says that all of heaven erupts. The, the living creatures around the throne and the elders. And indeed, everyone, it says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And everything that is in them bows down. And it says, the last word of Revelation 5, they worshipped. They fell down and worshipped. And so what I want you to see this morning is this. The history the history and the significance of the human race finds its culmination in worship. That's true in general. Human history finds its significance in the act of worship, but it's true for every one of us individually as well. That each of us finds our ultimate purpose and fulfillment as we worship God on his throne. God is glorious, and those who know him and see him can do nothing other than stand in awe of him. So look with me at this passage. Uh, I want you to see what John saw. I want you to see what worship really is. I want you to see what worship does in your life when you, when you worship. I want you to see how ascribing glory to God actually satisfies our heart's deepest longings. And how this preview of coming attractions is what we need now in order to live faithfully in the midst of a uh, fallen and broken world. The history of the universe finds its significance in worship, and so do we. Just as Isaiah saw the glory of God and responded by saying, here I am, I've found myself, so we find ourselves. We are renewed and transformed and equipped for life in this world through worship. So first, first thing I want you to notice in this passage is the purpose of worship purpose of worship. In, uh, in Revelation 5, John sees this scroll and this scroll, as we talked about last week, and would encourage you, by the way, if you're, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a regular here at Resurrection OC and you have to miss a, a Sunday uh, in the book of Revelation, I'd really encourage you to go and, to our website and listen to the podcast because uh, Revelation, more than maybe many other books of the Bible, it, it really is telling a story and it's so crucial to understand how that story develops throughout the, the course of the book. So uh, we talked a bit uh, in more detail about this last week. But the, the scroll, the scroll, why does John weep when nobody is found worthy to open the scroll? It's because this scroll contains the significance, God's perspective, uh, God's will on human history. 
and his plan to right everything that is wrong. And if nobody is found worthy to open that scroll, then our lives and everything evil and everything good that has ever happened is utterly meaningless. And at first it appears that no one is able, no one is worthy to open the scroll. And then John sees Jesus, the lion who roars with power, the lion who, who subdues his enemies. And he looks and he sees the lion who roars with power is the lamb who is slain, the lamb who shed his blood to forgive our sins. And, uh, and, the, lion, and the lion who is the lamb takes the scroll and, uh, and he is the one who's going to make sense of history. And when he takes the scroll, heaven erupts with singing uh, with worship and the, and the whole of heaven. And did you notice this? That John, John says uh, the elder, uh, the, the elder or the angel shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy? And no one, and it repeats, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was worthy to open the scroll. And then at the end, it's that, that same you know, thoroughness of those who worship. Everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth even the creatures in the sea, it says, worship. And they sing, worthy are you, for you are the lamb who was slain. Worship, what is worship? Worship is simply acknowledging that God is worthy. It's as simple and yet as profound as that. Uh, in, in fact, the, the word, the English word worship, it comes from like an old English word, meaning worth-ship. It's just ascribing worth to one who is worthy. Um, ascribing worth to simply proclaim that God is worthy of being praised. Worship is being filled with awe. Worship is boasting about, about someone. Worship is boasting not about myself and what I've done, but about God and who he is. Worship is being stunned by the, the presence, the goodness of God. Worship is, uh, is acknowledging that God is worthy to be praised simply for who he is, not... Not because of what he does for me, not because of what he gives me, not because of what I get out of it, but simply because he is worthy. Worship is being filled with awe. Uh, There's this idea in the word worship, or when when we talk about glory, um, the word glory really means weightiness. Worship is acknowledging that God is the one who really matters, that, that we are insubstantial. Uh, I don't know if that's a word, but, but, but then in, in comparison, that God is the one who, who has substance, who has weight, and he is worthy of being praised. That we are in comparison to God a vapor or a mist. So this passage shows us that worshiping is praising God because he is worthy, but it also shows us um, that, that this is the, the end, the goal of all of human history, is, is found in, in worship, in the worship of God. Um, one way to say this is that, that the Christian faith has a tele- teleological view of the universe. Okay, that word teleological, come, you know, telos. It means uh, that there's a goal, that there's a, a culmination of human history that we are moving towards. That Christians are people who believe that history has a goal that, it, that we are moving towards. Other, other um, views of history, you know, some people think that uh, history is cyclical, that history is just bound to repeat itself over and over again. Uh, many people in our, in our time and day would say that history is kind of progressive or evolutionary, that, that as, you know, um, kind of the survival of the fittest works itself out, that human beings uh, will one day rep- be replaced by something bigger and better than ourselves. Many people today, I think, would say that history really has no ultimate meaning. There's just life, there's existence, and then there is no more existence. And so you might as well enjoy it while you're here because there, there is no real meaning to life. But Christians are people who believe this passage in the Bible as a whole tells us that history is moving towards a culmination. There is a telos, there is a goal, there is a, there is a climax of history when Jesus... Uh, died on the cross and rose again from the grave. And just like any good story, there's a climax. There's this moment where everything hangs on the action of the hero. And having passed that climax, that history is moving towards the ultimate culmination when everything will finally be made right when Jesus returns and our response is worship. The, uh, the confession of our church um, 
in the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? End meaning not, um, you know, not like when are we all going to end, <laughs> but what is the end? What is the goal? What does it tell us? And the answer is that we are to enjoy God. Uh, well, I'm thinking on my feet to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I know what the answer to that question is. <laughs> To glorify God and enjoy Him forever, which is another way of saying what? Worship, right? The purpose of life is worship. I think we get glimpses of this in this life when we are, um, you know, when we behold something incredible. Um, you know, when, when, when the beauty of a sunset just takes your breath away. When the view of uh, snow-capped mountains uh, just leaves you awestruck. It's a little bit of a, a, a this feeling of worship, of awe, of wonder. Um, even apart from God, we think about it in moments of, you know, at the birth of a child, when uh, when when having come through a, a hard labor, you know, we, we cry tears of joy at the arrival of this one. It's breathtaking. I think one of the one of the ways that we experience um, a sense of what worship is about. That, that we can fail to acknowledge in our, in our life is, um, this is going to sound weird, but the power of crowds. Um, have you ever been, I mean, it depends what your thing is, but like at a sporting event or a concert or a play or a lecture or a worship service even where uh, something happens that just feels so significant and monumental and important. And you kind of leave going, this means something, and I, I want to tell my friends, and, you know, my friends are like, yeah, I like, I like that band, too. Like, they don't get it because they didn't experience it, but we know it has weight, it has substance, it has meaning. Did you notice that, uh, as I already said, that um, every creature, every creature will worship. We will be caught up in this great crowd of every creature on earth. Well, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them will worship. The power of crowds. You were created for worship. There is something in each one of us that longs, that longs to, be, to, to worship. It long, we long to be connected. Um, we long to be connected with, with someone or something. You know, this is a little bit what it feels like to fall in love and yet... And yet worship is something greater because we long to be connected with someone who is of infinite worth, of infinite value. We long to be connected with someone who is greater than we are. You were created to worship. And so that means this. Because you were created for worship, you are a creature who will worship. You will worship. I mean, whether you're sitting here this morning thinking I love the Bible or I can't stand the Bible you are no less a worshiper one way or the other the only question is what will you worship um, you know so many in our culture worship our children and if you don't believe me all you have to do is go to any sports field in South Orange County on a Saturday morning and you will be at a field of worship um, where middle-aged parents and grandparents gather to observe the athletic prowess of eight and ten-year-olds. And we are filled with elation and frustration. You know, why is that? Not because we're, you know, witnessing these feats of, you know, athletic agility, but because uh, we worship <laughs> our kids. You know, if you don't worship your kid's athletic performance, maybe you worship their uh, social standing or their academics. We worship our comfort in South Orange County. Um, sometimes I think we have this tendency to have this nostalgic idolization of our past that, that, uh, that borders on worship. You know, sometimes at family gatherings you see people sit around and of course it's great to tell stories of, of where we are, who we are and where we've come from and yet... Um, you know, what's the Bruce Springsteen song about glory days? It's a song about, uh, you know, his high school girlfriend, basically. Um, in our 40s, 50s, and 60s, we're still telling those stories of 
those best moments of our lives that happened at 18. You will worship something, and what you will worship will shape the trajectory of your life. Uh, the things that we worship shape the way that we actually live our lives. You are a person who is bound to worship. It's what you are made for. It's what you long for. And worshiping the true God is the only thing that will, that will truly satisfy you. That's what worship is. Uh, worship is glimpsing his glory and his beauty and responding by saying, yes, God, yes, you are worthy. You are worthy. Secondly, the action of worship. What does, what does worship look like? What, what, uh, what do we do in worship? Um, what activity, what actions uh, characterize worship? Verses 8 and 9 say this, that when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and, um, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Here's what I want you to hear. Worship must include singing, but it is more than singing. Worship must include singing, but it, but it is more than singing. Um, I've got to tell you that one of my pet peeves is when we refer to the singing part of a church service as worship. Like we start off with the worship, and then we have the announcements, and then we have the sermon, and then there's more worship. Drives me crazy. <laughs> um, worship is an activity that involves singing, but must uh, include more than singing. I think it is helpful to think about the activity of worship by thinking about worship in two ways. The, there, there is worship as an activity, and there is also worship as a lifestyle. And so uh, worship as an activity includes um, things like praying. Uh, it, it includes, like Trevor said, giving is an act of worship. Um, even announcements are, an, are an, a part of our worship because we're talking about what does it look like as a community to live this life together. Um, reading and, and preaching and listening to the word of God is an act of worship. And yes, of course, uh, singing is also an act of worship. Uh, we engage in the activity of worship together as a church weekly. It's this weekly rhythm of meeting on Sunday mornings to, to gather for worship. Um, and yet our goal as a church is also to encourage you in less formal ways in the day in and day out of life to engage in the activities of worship in your family and individually to pray, to, to read your Bible, to sing uh, together. Worship is an activity and yet worship is also a lifestyle. I mean, think about this. If worship is, is praising God because he is worthy of being praised, then in a real sense, worship cannot just be certain activities. It has to encompass every, every element of who we are, all of our lives. Uh, worship becomes this kind of posture or all-of-life lifestyle. And so that means that uh, things like this, like when we do our work well, with gratitude to God because he's the one who gives us a job, he's the one who cares for us. And so we... Uh, we work not to make a name for ourselves, but to glorify him and to serve others we are worshiping. When we go out of our way to show kindness to our neighbor, and to befriend somebody who is difficult to love, when we produce pieces of art or useful technology, when we build infrastructure that is for the good of the world, out of deep reverence for God's own work in our lives, we are engaging in worship as a lifestyle. Romans 12 uh, verse 1, having explained the majesty of God's work in, uh, in redemption, the Apostle Paul then says this. He says, I appeal to you by the mercy of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Worship is both an activity and a lifestyle, and it must include both. And I think that um, many of us have this tendency to be drawn towards one or the other, and yet it has to be both. Worship, worship has to be an activity, but it also has to be a lifestyle that characterizes our, our entire lives. Uh, worship involves singing, but it's also more than singing. Notice the passage says that they sang a new song. 
Why do so many biblical passages talk about sing, uh, worship in the context of singing? Why, you know, if worship is more than singing, why, um, why does the Bible so frequently talk about worship in the context of singing? Well, did you know, I'm, I'm sure you're not going to believe this, but did you know there are people who will regularly come to church and not sing? And I'm not, I'm not talking about people who, you know, wouldn't consider themselves Christians. People who consider themselves, themselves committed Christians who are regularly, uh, a regular part of the church will come to church and, you know, we just, no, we're not going to sing. <laughs> um, why does the Bible say that singing is so important to worship? I think that the reason that singing is so important to worship is this, that worship requires self-awareness without self-consciousness. Worship, that's what you need to do to sing. You need to be self-aware without being self-conscious. Um, I love to sing in my kitchen when we're cooking. But if you were all to show up, I wouldn't because I'm self-conscious, right? Um, but we, you know, you say, I don't want to sing because I don't have a good voice. Or I don't like that music. You know, I don't like those songs. I want to try to say this kind of bluntly, but hopefully gently. It's, it's not about you. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> like, I don't sing because I have a great voice. Somebody recently told me I have a great singing voice. I have no idea what they're talking about. I, I have the range of Johnny Cash. I growl instead of singing, but, uh, but I don't sing because I've got such a great voice. I sing because I have a great God. I don't sing because I like the music. I sing because God likes the worship. Uh, worship is not um, about our preferences. Worship is about glorifying God. Worship is about self-awareness without self-consciousness. Uh, this is important. I mean, Worship is not um, losing your identity. You know, worship is about being called into something transcendent, something higher than ourselves. But it's not about losing our identity. I mean, it's kind of there's this Eastern mystic view of, of uh, transcendence is really like ceasing to exist and being absorbed into, you know, the force. Uh, I know that's a bit of a crude explanation, but you understand what I'm saying. Worship requires self-awareness. We have to be aware of who we are in order to bring ourselves to God. And yet it also requires um, a lack of self-consciousness. If you see how, um, who God is, if you see that the almighty creator of the universe spoke, boom, the universe came into existence. Billions and billions of stars across you know, uh, untold galaxies uh, spanning millions and billions of light years across. And that God uh, who spoke that all into existence revealed his will to human beings. And when we responded by spitting, him in, uh, spitting in his face, that he didn't respond by simply <laughs> destroying this one tiny part of his creation. But he responded instead by taking on our skin and taking on our sin and taking on our curse and dying a humiliating death and being raised again and ascending into heaven and then inviting us into his family and giving us a purpose and mission for life in this world until he comes back. If your response to that is to sit on your hands and say, I don't like this song, <laughs> then I would suggest that maybe you're missing the point. Because it's just not about you. I know it makes you feel kind of silly. I mean, guys, can we just be honest? Like, men singing, I get, I get it. It feels kind of silly. It's not about you. <laughs> God is so much grander than that. Worship draws us out of ourselves and out of our self-consciousness because worship is connecting with God himself. It's not about us, and so we have to sing. Let me just let me put it like this. If you can go to a soccer game, and you can watch your little girl score her first goal and your response is to say, yes! Then if you cannot sing in worship of your God, I would suggest that maybe you haven't actually experienced his presence in a moving way. Self-awareness without self-consciousness. 
Um, they sang, they sang, but it says that they sang a new song. Um, I, I could talk a lot more about this, but you realize I could talk a lot more about most things, but <laughs> they sang a new song. I think uh, sometimes I hear people, people ask, why do we sing this song? Why don't we sing, I like these songs better. Why don't we sing those songs? I, I, there's a limit to what kinds of song, how many songs we can sing, but why don't we sing newer songs? Why don't we sing older songs? He, here's the, the point, I think. Um, our faith, our experience of our faith rests on the shoulders of those who have come before us. And so we have to sing uh, the songs of those who went before us. And yet God is always at work in us in a new and fresh way. And so we have to be singing new songs too. And so I think you could say that, um, that we ask people on the older side of the spectrum to sing newer songs and we ask people on the younger side of the spectrum to sing older songs. We need both, but when God moves, when God moves, we will have to sing because worship is being stunned with the glory of who God is. Worship is, man, I wish I could figure out a way to say that that made it feel more surprising <laughs> because I say that so often and yet, and yet I think worship is what happens in those moments where we're like, God, oh my gosh, oh my God, I was totally caught off guard. Um, let me see if I can, I hope this isn't too crude of an analogy, but um, do, any, do you know who Susan Boyle is? Um, <laughs> some of you are nodding. Okay, Susan Boyle. How can I describe Susan Boyle without... Um, uh, getting myself in the hot water here. <laughs> Susan Boyle um, was a contestant on uh, Britain's Got Talent, which is like the British version of American Idol. And um, Susan Boyle comes out to sing a song, and Simon Cowell, who is, I think, famous for being a jerk, uh, he's probably done some other things, but, <laughs> you know, Susan Boyle comes out, and uh, what's a word to describe Susan Boyle? Frumpy. Okay, I didn't say it, but thank you. Um, I mean, she's got like a monobrow, you know, unibrow. Um, Su Simon Cowell asks Susan Boyle, how old are you? She says, I'm 47 years old. He says, what's the dream here? And she says, to become a professional singer. You know, she's the most thoroughly unimpressive looking person who has probably performed. You know, I, I haven't watched a lot of these, these shows, but you're thinking that this is one of those acts they put in there just to show how silly and foolish people are. And he says, okay, you want to become a professional singer. You're 47, you know, what's, what have you been waiting for? She says, I just, just haven't had the opportunity yet. And everybody's kind of snickering and there is zero expectation. Um, and then she begins to sing, and she sings uh, a song from Les Miserables. She sings, uh, is it called I Dreamed a Dream? I think is the song, and it's just breathtaking. I, I watched it again this morning just to remind myself, and uh, I mean, I'm just like, I'm just crying, you know. It, it, the, the audience is standing up. Uh, everybody's cheering for her. The judges are absolutely blown away. Uh, Okay, here's, here's the, the point. That is a picture, I think, of what happens in worship. When something that is so thoroughly unimpressive just takes our breath away. I mean, can you think about... Uh, I heard about a couple of policemen in, uh, in China, communist China, who raided a church, and they go into the church, and they... They look up at the, the cross, and there's a, it's a crucifix in this church, and one of them says to the other, who is that? And they say, that's, that's their, he says, that's their God. He says, well, I've never heard of, a, I've never heard of a, a, a God who would die for his people. And Jesus is so thoroughly unimpressive. I mean, the Bible even says he was, he was not, um, there was nothing about his physical appearance that would impress us. And yet the Son of God incarnate, uh, when we glimpse his, his glory, the glory of the universe contained in, in Jesus, it simply blows us away. It's so, it's so unexpected. Jesus, uh, 
the fullness of God, the glory of God dying on our behalf, rising again, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. It's so stunning we have to worship. Um, At Christmas we sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Please with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing. We have to sing. We have to glorify him. We have to worship because he's so incredibly beautiful. We're going to worship. Listen, friends, this is the gospel. Worship is not what you do for God as as much as it is your response to what God has done for you. Here's the great news. You don't have to make it happen. (laughs) Worship is not about us in our strength and ingenuity bringing our best to God. Worship is acknowledging that God is strong, that he has given us his best. Worship is not rehearsing our great commitment to God. It's about God's great commitment to us. What did we sing earlier? Um, um, Oh, I don't remember what we sang earlier. (laughs) He will hold me fast. Worship is about responding to the God who has saved us, his glory. Thirdly, finally, look at the heart of worship. It's just the purpose or the activity of worship, but the heart of worship. This is perhaps the most profound thing, I think, to understand about worship. What worship is at its essence, worship is being drawn into the life of the triune God himself. Worship is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bringing creatures like us into, into his slash their collective life together. Um, there is something fundamental in each of us that longs uh, to be on the inside of something. You know, we, we went for a walk with our family yesterday and there was this construction site with a fence around it. And the first thing we all did was try to see what through the fence as soon as you put up a fence, we want to know what's on the inside. Why? We want to be on the inside. You know, if you, we, want to, we want to have a group of friends that welcomes us. We want to be in the inner circle. You can paper over the windows of a storefront, and we want to know what's going to come in there. We long to be included. And the reason that we find our significance in worship is because in worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, bring us in to the inner life of the Godhead. I remember hearing once as a, I don't know, youth pastor saying, you know, in all of creation, there is only one thing that God cannot give himself, and that is worship. It's a false statement. (laughs) Because do you know that before there was you or me or Adam or Eve or anyone, forever. There is a God who is a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who existed worshiping in this kind of society of mutual affection and appreciation, glorifying one another. And so God did not create us because he needed somebody to worship him. Uh, God is a, is a community of persons who glorifies himself, God's self. He didn't, uh, he didn't create us because he was uh, wanting somebody uh, to love him back. God created human beings, uh, not because he was bored. He created human beings simply as an overflow of his love. And then in order to invite us into the worshiping, loving life of the triune God himself. And what was our response? Our response was to say, no, thank you. I'm going to do my own thing. And so our first parents divorced God in the Garden of Eden. And so how does God respond? God responds not by wiping them out, but by wooing us back, by pursuing us. And so the son comes into the world to seek for himself a bride. We responded with rebellion. God responds by wooing us. And so having cleansed us with the blood of the lamb, he extends to us once again the invitation to enter into the life of the Trinity through worship. In this passage, we see a picture of the triune God 
Uh, think about what you see in Revelation 4 and 5. There's one described seated on the throne. God, the Father, I suppose. Uh, and then there is the, the Son, Jesus, who is described as the Lion who roars with power, but the, also the Lamb who is slain. And it's described um, in this passage, is it verse 6, He's described as having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And I don't have time to fully unpack that, but, but that, that is an image of the fullness of the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. So there's this picture of the triune God at the heart of the universe, this God who is worshipped by the angels and the elders and the great multitude. This is the God we worship, the God who invites us into his life, into the inner circle, into the circle of praise. Uh, in John 17, Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross. And as he prays, he prays, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then a little bit later, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. You see what Jesus is saying? He says, Father, you and I have been glorifying each other forever. And now I'm giving that glory to my followers. The heart of worship is responding to the God who invites us into the inner circle, into his presence to worship him, into his life. C.S. Lewis, he describes uh, this longing that each of us feel, the longing to belong, um, the longing to be included, the longing to be significant, to be connected to um, the object of our affection. In, in, really, in a really poignant way, in, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he says that... Um, his language is kind of antiquated. Uh, it just feels a little antiquated. But basically what, he, what he's talking about is there's this ache in each of us for like uh, to scratch an itch that we can never quite find. And uh, he, he says that um, we give it different names. We call it names like nostalgia or romanticism or adolescence or beauty. But we are longing, what we are longing for is not our youth or the thing that looms large in our memory or a great evening with friends. For they are, this is the quote, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower that we have not found, the echo of a tune that we have not yet heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. And the promise of Revelation 5 is that one day a door will open and you will at last get in. And that itch that you've been longing to scratch will finally be satisfied and all of your hungers will be satiated. And you will no longer call it wishful thinking or nostalgia. Psalm 16 says, you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So let me ask you this question. I mean, this is kind of the so what. How committed are you to the centrality of worship in your life. I mean, what this passage is telling us is, is nothing short of, of this. This is your destiny. This is, where, this is what you will spend all eternity doing if you are in Christ. This is what you long for, and this is the only thing that will truly satisfy you. The worship of the church is God's instrument for the transformation of the world. Is that a startling statement? The worship of the church is God's instrument for the transformation of the world. This is what we're going to be doing forever. <laughs> Here's the problem. Here's the problem. We live in a world that refuses to be satisfied in God. We live in a world that doesn't even believe that it's possible to be satisfied in God. Um, what people outside of... Um, let me put it like this, because most of you live in Orange County, I assume. I don't mean to insult you, but do you know what your friends and family who live outside of Orange County say about people who live in Orange County? Uh, well, when I first talked to somebody and told them we were, our family was going to move to Orange County to plant a church, somebody said, why would you want to move to plasticky, fake, materialistic, shallow Orange County? Not my words again. <laughs> but... We live in a world that, that says, I can be satisfied with a little more. And Orange County like turns that up to 11 and says, go for it. 
Uh, we live in a world that says a little bit bigger house, a little bit newer car, a little bit longer vacation, a little bit more in the bank account. That's what you really need. And Orange County says, I'm all in. We're going for it. Okay. That's not the problem. The problem is that we now, that's the culture that we live in. The problem is that the church has adopted those values. You know, what, what is the relationship of the church in the culture that we live in, or any culture? Um, you know, I think over the last 50, 60 years, there's been a, a couple of different approaches to the relationship of the church to the culture. One has been to kind of shake our finger. The church shakes our finger at the, at the church of the culture and says, that's bad, don't do that. It's true, it probably is bad. It's not terribly com- compelling. Another approach is um, to live in this kind of Christian subculture. And, and what, that, what that looks like is we live in this bubble where Christians are isolated from the world and yet look exactly like the world. And so we have um, like subculture Christian, Christian versions of everything the world has. We have you know, Christian music and Christian radio stations and Christian cars and we only eat at Christian restaurants. And, right, it's... it's we just have a lamer version of everything that the world has. Um, here's, I think, the picture that the Bible paints, that the church is not a um, kind of against the culture, the church is not a subculture, but the church is an alternative culture. Uh, that, that the church exists um, in the world, but not of it, as has often been said. We, are, we, are, we live in the midst and around the rest of the world, and yet we have a distinct way of life in the midst of that culture. Because we are a com- community so satisfied by God himself and so committed to a life of worship and so filled with his glory and even overflowing that we simply live a different style of life. So here's the problem. When the world is living like this and the church has said, yeah, we kind of want that too. We just believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. It's not a terribly compelling uh, argument for anyone, is it? But can you imagine if we were to live in the world but not of it as a church community that was committed to a life of worship together? All of a sudden, the question of evangelism in our world becomes a lot smaller of a problem. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that, that, that our worship should always be done in a way that if, a, if, if somebody walked into a worship service and said, I don't actually agree with you on the Bible, Jesus, anything, that that person would understand what's going on and our worship would be so moving that they would find their heart warmed and they would say, I don't even believe in God, but I want to worship your God with you. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't that be... Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't it be incredible if instead of relying on clever arguments and intellectual, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's a place for that, of course. But if we didn't rely on um, kind of the idea that we could argue people into the kingdom of God, but instead we simply invited our friends into worship and prayed that the Holy Spirit would move in our midst. You know what really messes somebody up is when they come into a worship service saying, I absolutely disagree with this, and yet I experience the presence of God. That's, that's, that's powerful. So here's the question. How committed are you to a life of worship? How committed are you to a life of worship? The, wor- the worship of the church is God's instrument for the transformation of the world. How committed are you to being a part of the church as we gather for worship and as we are scattered and living lives, a lifestyle of worship. How, um, how committed are you to getting your children into worship? That's a question for us, isn't it? Let me, let me just finish with this. Um, and I hope this is an encouragement to worship. <laughs> One thing that's absolutely true, the Bible, the Bible testifies to this over and over again, is that you will become like whatever it is that you worship. Whatever it is that you set your heart on, whatever it is that, uh, that evokes awe in your life, 
uh, you will more and more become like that thing. Um, I, I have a friend who uh, is, a, is a woman who, um, you know, sometimes you go into somebody's home and you just feel immediately cared for and welcome. Uh, somebody with a gift of, the gift of hospitality. And uh, this person was telling me that a friend of hers had commented, you know, kind of made that observation about her, your home is so welcoming. And she thought it was strange that she didn't see like issues of, of uh, like good, fine housekeeping and all these like house magazines. I'm, you know, I don't know the, the titles. You know what I'm talking about? These magazines that are like, you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> home and garden. And, uh, and this person said, you know, I found that having those magazines in my home uh, evokes a hunger for what I don't have rather than a satisfaction with what I already have. And the point is this, that whatever you spend your time doing and thinking about and placing your heart on will actually shape the way that you experience your life in the long run. You know, if you are a, um, if, you, if, if you decided that every night you were going to watch a romantic comedy, you know, for let's say three months, I guarantee you that you would become a more relationally anxious person. <laughs> um, you would believe that your life would be better with better relationships, and yet you will feel less secure in your relationships. We could just make that point over and over again. You will become like whatever it is you worship. But you cannot have your life intersect with God and not be changed. And so the act of the church as we gather for worship every week and as we are dispersed into our lives as friends and neighbors and workers uh, is essential um, because as we worship, our other loves begin to melt away. As we are startled afresh with the goodness of who God is, it actually, in the moment, our anxieties melt away. Our sense of self-importance begins to melt away. Um, I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the worst at this, but like sometimes we walk into church like nothing is going to happen. And like I'm the one who's got to preach most times. But you cannot come into the presence of God as he meets his people for worship and not be changed. You cannot have yourself intersect, your life intersect with the lion who is the lamb and not say he is worthy and respond by giving your life to him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your beauty. You are stunning in your character. You are stunning in your work of redemption. And so, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we respond by crying out, you are worthy. We love you. We need you. Would you help us to um, know your presence and experience your goodness? God, would we be startled afresh even this morning with the majesty of what you've done in us and that as we respond in worship, would we be so satisfied in you that even a watching world would say there's something different going on with those people. Please help us to be people who worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.